Hey folks, welcome to Machine Repeat Podcast, episode number 39, here early in November of 2021. Thank you very much for stopping by. I hope uh, harvest season has been progressing well wherever you are. And we have a really fun show today, um, and it's pretty cool. When it comes to uh, gift giving and shopping, I have not been known to have a ton of game in this area. You can ask my wife, Mrs. Machine Repeat, but I do have the absolute perfect Christmas gift idea for anyone in your family or friend network that loves uh, tractors and the history of tractors. We are going to talk to my friend Neil Dahlstrom, who's the manager of archives and history at John Deere. And Neil is a great guy, and he has a new book coming out. Uh, It's going to be released, I think, early in January 2022 here. It's called Tractor Wars. And I tell you what, this is a phenomenal book. It only costs 25 bucks. You can order it right on Amazon. And we're going to talk to Neil just some fascinating stories from the period uh, late 1800s up through the 1920s, so about 100 years ago, really when, uh, like the book, the title says, Tractor Wars. Um, the companies we know uh, today and love, you know, how did they get in this position, which ones Maybe missed the opportunity. Just some fascinating personal stories. Uh, Now, before we get to Neil, I do have to do a quick market update here. Um, As I record this, uh, episode number 39, it is November 8th, 2021. And I just got back from Maryland. We were out filming an episode of Machine Repeat TV show. Uh, We covered an auction in Keymar, Maryland, which is just south of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Beautiful farm country out there in northern uh, Maryland, southern Pennsylvania. And it was a retirement sale for Bill McGrew. And, folks, 32 years I've been doing this. I just got to tell you straight up, I mean, it was the hottest farm machinery auction I've ever seen. And it was unbelievable. Now, you maybe saw some of the YouTube videos I've started to release from the auction. But uh, just to give you a few examples how hot this sale was, um, the first tractor on the auction was a 1998 John Deere 7810, 914 original hours. So obviously, crazy low hours there. But it sold for $170,000. And if you go to MachineRepeat.com, which you know all our auction prices are free, so please go there, check out whatever you need to price. Uh, but the fact is, that's $32,400 over the previous high. $32,400. Over the previous high, which, by the way, was just set earlier this year, March 13th of 2021, uh, $137,600 U.S. dollars. The farm auction was in Essex, Ontario, for an 01 Model 7810 with 1,747 hours on it. There was a lot of chatter last week as I was heading out to Maryland. Machine repeat, do you think this will be a record? And I'd say about three-quarters of the people thought, yeah, it'll be a record. The others thought, no, there's no way. It could ever touch 137.6 like that was crazy. Well, it didn't touch it. It just absolutely dusted it, 170K. And frankly, it got hotter from there. Uh, just a couple other examples. The Namely, the how about a 1990 Ford 4610 Series 2? Nice little tractor, neat as a pin, 1,256 hours, so super low hour for a 31-year-old tractor. Highest I'd ever seen at auction was 14000 bucks, And folks, that was on December 29th of 1999 on a farm auction in Hagerstown, Maryland. So interesting to note, it was also Maryland, but again, 22 years ago. 
So this 4610 with 1,256 hours Saturday, it sold for $36,500, almost triple the record price. And I just posted a YouTube video of it yesterday. You can go watch it sell. It's unbelievable. But right after the 4610 brought uh, 36.5, they had a couple other items. Then we rounded the corner, and uh, my auctioneer friends, uh, McGrew Equipment Company, had the sale. Uh, Greg McGrew, great auctioneer out there, and just a super guy. And the sale was actually for his father, Bill McGrew. But Greg rolls up to the two uh, skid steers, and there's a 2000 Case 465. It's only got 132 hours on it, so... You know, 16 years old, absolutely like new. Highest auction price I'd ever seen on a Case 465 before Saturday was 24000 bucks, And that was on March 5th of 2011. That was uh, Sullivan Auctioneers had that one on their consignment sale. So 10 and a half years ago, 24K. The, one, the 465 sold Saturday in Maryland with 132 hours, $53,000. So as you're... Catching your breath from that one, right next to it was a 2000 model Case 1845C skid steer, 641 hours. Now, when we were filming for the TV show there, I, I did a little segment, and I said, folks, if I had a nickel for every time somebody told me the 1845C is their favorite skid steer model, she and repeat would have a lot of nickels. Well, the highest I'd ever seen on an 1845C before Saturday was 30500 bucks. Again, over 10 years ago. To be specific, it was August 27th of 2011 in Weldon, Iowa. 30500 bucks. So what the 1845C in Maryland sell for Saturday? $41,000. And oh, by the way, those two skid steers in that John Deere 7810 for 170000 bucks went to the same buyer. And that buyer was from Illinois. It's kind of a long way from Maryland. But that's the used equipment market right now, folks. It's all about quality and availability. So, you know, again, I thought this auction Saturday was just amazing. So we'll have a couple episodes upcoming on the TV show about us, so stay tuned for that. But now it's time to get to my interview with Neil Dahlstrom, manager of archives and history at John Deere, about his unique job, uh, you know, maintaining the history in the archives for John Deere, which company goes back to 1837, and specifically about Neil's new book, Tractor Wars. Uh, so let's go to that conversation now. Proper tire inflation is important, especially as you spend time out in the field this harvest season. Opinions can vary about the best tire pressure for different situations, but as seasoned growers know, using the wrong tire inflation pressure can be a costly mistake. To maximize the longevity and performance of your tires, Firestone Ag created tools and resources to ensure you're using the right tire pressure for your equipment. Experience benefits like larger footprint, reduced tire slip, and longer tire life by utilizing these resources. And get the most out of your tires this harvest season. Visit FirestoneAg.com to explore the tire pressure calculator, view the helpful inflation table, and learn about the seven-step tire check. Hey folks, I want to welcome our guest to our Machine Repeat podcast, and I tell you what, this is going to be a fun conversation uh, with my friend Neil Dahlstrom, the uh, manager of the Archives and History at John Deere. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now I, I want to make sure I get your, your title of your uh, 
job with deer right there. I mentioned manager of archives and history, Neil, but I've also seen branded properties and heritage manager. Yeah, that, that's right. That includes what we call the branded properties, the John Deere Pavilion, the John Deere Historic Site, and the John Deere Tri Engine Museum. Okay. And Neil, you're in Moline, is that correct? That's right. Okay. And you've been with Deer. Did I see this on LinkedIn uh, recently? You just had your 20th anniversary with John Deere? My 20th anniversary in May. In May. Well, congratulations. And uh, I have to ask, Neil, how does one become the manager of the archives? It was, do you have a history uh, background and uh, major PhD or what, what is your background? <laughs> Yeah, I studied um, history and, and classics, actually, as an undergrad. So I'm from the Quad Cities, okay, and um, which includes Moline and East Moline. Yep. So I'm, I'm, I'm from here. Um, actually, my, my dad and grandfather both worked for Case IH ah, um, okay. in, the, in, the, in the combine factory in East sure, Moline. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I knew about, about farm equipment growing up and Okay. I studied history. I went to grad school and, and got a master's in historical administration with a concentration in archives. Okay. And um, moved to the East Coast where I joined a startup archive that was documenting the history of the commercial space industry. Wow. So, you know, we read about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, and private space exploration. And, and that really, really started in the 1960s, um, picked up a lot of steam in the 1980s. So I joined this startup archive to document that, mm. and w- within a couple of years, we, um, we we lost our funding, and I was looking for a job, and a friend of mine worked at John Deere and said they're hiring an archivist, and I said, John Deere has an archive? Mm. <laughs> welcome home, huh? Yeah, welcome home, and and, and I, I, I'll never forget my, my office. I remember sitting in the office the first day, and I moved from, from Virginia, and the what was then an open field across the street from the archives is where I grew up playing soccer. I grew up about a mile down the street. Oh, wow. And, and so I saw this building for most of my childhood and never once noticed a John Deere sign in front of it and had no idea what, what was inside. Oh, amazing. Now, so the archives at Deere, I mean, they they go way back. They'd had folks in charge of all the. I mean, obviously, I guess they did, but... Um, how far back does it go? The archives itself started in 1976, but, but actually it predates that. We had, um, starting in the very early 20th century, uh, they had what they called the Agricultural Library. Okay. So that's why we're fortunate that, that, that manuscripts survived, that early company records survived. Um, speeches, publications, bulletins, press releases, those sorts of materials existed in the Agricultural Library. And and then um, and then the archives was started in 1976, which was not uncommon. It was the the U.S. bicentennial. Oh sure, sure. So there was this this you know new wave of, of archives that started springing up all over the place, both mm. both private, public, and and Deer was one of them. Fortunately, kind of interesting, isn't it? Our our you know America really isn't that old, and our culture is built on just. You know, to I guess use a phrase from from Deer's sweet spot, but we we plow forward at warp speed, we, and we tend not to look back too much. But the lessons to be learned, uh, mistakes to be avoided by learning from the past. I mean, it as Americans, we need to maybe do a better job at uh, owning our history. I think, don't we? 
I couldn't agree more. And, and there's always more to explore and, and other angles. And I think you have to treat it like, like most things, which is you, you got to dig into it and, and you got to, you got to surface stories. You got to, got to be willing to kind of dive in versus just, just kind of reading what's out there and, and regurgitating right. it. Right. Because there's, there's all those individual stories and that's, what's always fascinated me is right. how did something come to be within the context of the times? Um, because you, you really got to dig in and into the context to understand why decisions were made. Right. And well, unfortunately we kind of live in a sound bite clickbait world, don't we? Where it's, everything is surface level and, uh, the, what is the truth? And, uh, it's complicated, but uh, Neil, on the topic of digging in, uh, boy, this is super exciting. Uh, you have a new book coming out called, is it called Tractor Wars? It is. And that's going to be released uh, in January of 2022, correct? Right. It comes out on January 11th, 2022, and, and the full title is Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford International Harvester and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. Well, folks, Neil was kind enough to send me kind of a, a an inside pre-look, and I tell you what, this book is amazing. I, I was transfixed going through the first number of chapters here. Neil, thank you for sending that. And um, now the book is available for pre-sale, isn't it? So for folks looking for the ultimate uh, holiday uh, gift to a farming tractor lover, uh your book, Tractor Wars, they can uh, purchase that on Amazon. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. And, yeah, just tell people how to how to find it. And it was it cost like 25 bucks or something? Yeah, it's $25 for the, the hardcover version. There's a Kindle version available, and there, there will be an audio book um, available at well, as well. But if you just go to, to Amazon or even just Google Tractor Wars, okay, um, it, it should come up right away. Okay. Folks, you'll never spend better 25 bucks than buying Neil's book Tractor Wars. It is fascinating. Neil, I love how you 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 dive into the past and and dig out the truth in a storytelling form. And let's just start talking a little bit here. Uh, um, of course, the history of tractors, um, you know, again, we, I think we take so much for granted. I mean, we have a, maybe a cursory knowledge about, you know, well, the first tractor came out in the early 1900s or whatever, but um, you start off your book, the very first chap- chapter is the Ford tractor. So walk us back. I was intrigued a little bit. You told a story about Henry Ford being a young man in 1875 and he on the farm and he heard a particular noise that kind of uh, maybe changed his life. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, and as I started doing research for the, the book, I quickly got sucked into the life of Henry Ford and and this encounter when he was 12 years old, um, it was the first time he, he ever saw basically a, a motorized engine in his life. And um, Ford grew up on the farm uh, outside of Dearborn, and it just captivated him. And, and the, the, the way I've kind of told it is, yeah, he ended up going into the car business. He introduced the Model T in 1908, but it kind of got in the way because up to that point, his lifelong dream was to build a farm tractor. And, and just that, that kind of view of Henry Ford, I'd run across it. Um, but you, you start digging and there just wasn't enough, enough information around it to, to really satisfy my curiosity. And, and so that's what really got me involved was figuring out how cars got in the way of Henry Ford's tractor. Yeah. That's an amazing, uh, 
realization there. You, you know, in cars, of course, uh, Henry Ford and Ford, I mean, they revolutionized production and, uh, you know, the world with, with the car. Um, but at his roots with the farm roots there, you're saying he kind of always wanted to get back to create kind of a, a farm tractor to maybe take us away from just the straight horsepower of, of horses. That's right. He, he used the word drudgery a lot, hmm. um, probably more than any other word he ever used in his life, as far as I can tell. And, and he never understood why farmers just repeated the same work and the same processes and used the same equipment over and over and over again. Hmm. And he was just mechanically minded, of, of course. And and uh, there's, there's stories of him repairing watches when he was young and, hmm. and climbing through the steam yards and, and looking at locomotives. And he was just fascinated by, by all of this technology. And that's what it was. And so he was just he was frustrated at the drudgery of farm work. And, and just always wanted to improve on that through mechanical equipment. And, and that's really what he set out to do. There just wasn't really a market for it. Okay. And that's, that's how he got, got into the automobile industry. And he was seduced by, by racing early on and trying to make a name for himself. Yeah. I, 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 you'll have to correct me on the stat, but, uh, by 19, was it, uh, Oh nine, how many vehicles, I mean, the number, the, the way they ramped up the automobile sales in a couple of years was just astronomical, wasn't it? Yeah, they stopped taking orders after the first few months, mm. and um, because because he couldn't keep up, and 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 in addition to what he was building, he always had this preoccupation with affordability, and and that it had to be available to everybody, mm. and that that is is a philosophy he carried. Um, with him his, his entire life for his automobiles, but also for the farm tractor, that it had to be affordable. And, and that was one of the drivers for this assembly line, which wasn't his concept, but he, of course, adopted and improved on. And, and so how do you take that? And it was also one of the flaws long-term in the operation, which is, you know, everything's built exactly the same. Right. And, and that was something that started to become a liability later on with, with the Fordson tractor. Yeah, interesting. You know, just fascinating. I, I had just a little exposure to uh, Henry Ford anecdotes through our our, our late friend Harold Brock. Um, passed away in what was it, two thousand ten or eleven? But a former engineer for Ford and then Deere um, went to work for Henry when he was a young kid in Detroit. But uh, it's interesting. You said that uh, the affordability factor. What do you think it was about Henry Ford that was that a straight business thing? Let, let's sell more at a lower price, or was it just the, the care for the common man coming from the farm? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it was the latter. I think it was just kind of his care for the, the common person. He's such a, a complex person. He was lacking in, in kind of a school education, and that comes out time and time again. Um, and then you couple that with, with his mechanical aptitude and his ability to organize and manage people. Um, and then all of a sudden, just when, when one day you wake up and you're the richest person on the planet, yeah. a lot, a lot comes with that. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And, and his ability just to, to scale up so quickly, hmm. he just always seemed to be one step of, ahead of everyone. Right. And so he was just this very much split personality where he was just brilliant on one hand 
hand. And on the other hand, he couldn't tell you basic facts about American history. Wow. That is amazing. Henry Ford. Yeah. Just obviously legend of legends there. Uh, so tractor wars, um, Neil, you're, you're kind of walking it right back to the start. Um, and I like the way you've broken it down in your book. It's, it's very systematic. Um, I guess I was struck a little bit by some of the background on uh, International Harvester Company, its formation and utter dominance of the egg space. I mean, I, I think you said the company wasn't formed until like 1902, and there was a merger of companies into what became International Harvester Company. That's right. It, it came together in 1902, and this is the era of, of trusts. Yep. Um, think of, of U.S. Steel and American Tobacco and, the, and these companies. Yep. And and they were, um, you know, they were a hundred million dollar company uh, in an age where a company like John Deere was a two or three million dollar a year company. Right. So they they were a behemoth. They they owned eighty five plus percent of of the harvesting equipment market, which was by far the most profitable. Wow. Um, so, so they really dominated a number of industries. They were very early in the development of farm tractors, what they called an, an auto mower. Early on, they were in automobile production. They were designing trucks. So they were very much on, on the leading edge yeah. of, of, of a lot of this early on. So that's who everyone was chasing. Yeah, and again, we sit here modern time and we think, oh, John Deere, gosh, they've always been dominant. But in Tractor Wars, your book, you, I mean, you're – getting into the discussions about these companies. Do we get into making tractors? Do we buy this rival? I was struck by, you had a stat in there that said International Harvester sold 40% of the tractors in America in 1911. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it sounds like a lot and it was at the time, but it was a, it was a small, it was a small industry. Right. Okay. And, 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 and some of this research for me started for, for years and years, I've been asked the question, why was John Deere late getting into the tractor business? And so, of course, I always have this Deere perspective when I think about these things. Sure. And, and I, I started giving it an answer, which I'm not incredibly proud of, but a real cheeky answer where I'd say, well, Deere was, was later than those before them, and they were before those after them. Right, and, um, and and that was that was my way of masking the fact that I had no idea what the answer to the question was. <laughs> <laughs> but as a historian, you set about to find out. Exactly, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to dig in and I'm going to find the answer. And, and so, a, a part of the equation was, well, when Deer started looking into it, which was 1912, yep. you know, Deer bought Waterloo and the, the Waterloo Gas and Engine Company in 1918. Yep, but. But development actually started in 1912. Okay. And, and at the time, the entire market, um, at least American market, was in the neighborhood of, I think, 11 or 12,000 machines. Okay. Um, all companies combined, and it was only a handful of companies at that period of time. Okay. And Harvester um, sold 40% of those. And, right. and so that's the transition from steam engines to these large gasoline-powered Tractors, think right. of, of like the the big four, um, or these these large um, you know international harvester titans. Right. Well, I was uh, struck by a couple sequences early in the book. One, just the personal nature of people. You know, these execs with these companies, and I, I, frankly, my thirty two years doing what I do, I've always been. It's like my favorite part of the farm machinery world is it's still a personal business. 
whether it's a farmer dealer relationship, auction company, whatever. But you had a story about I think it was William Butterworth. Did I get the name right there? One of the he was he was the um, basically the CEO at Deer at the time in nineteen. Right. Okay, and he was in Chicago staying at a hotel, and he gets a phone call. Now, who was it? Who was the head of uh, International Harvester then? That would have been. It was Cyrus McCormick Jr. Okay, so Cyrus calls William, like, "Hey, dude," and they had lunch, right? Yeah, yeah, they had lunch, and, and basically they were both playing playing coy, right? Um, which was. Uh, McCormick had learned that Deere was entering the harvesting business okay. or the harvesting equipment business. And, and Butterworth was saying, well, yeah, you know, we're thinking about it, but I don't think we really have the resources to do it. Um, and of course they both done their homework. Uh, they, they both kind of have an idea of what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And, and so then they both, they, they both go back to their boards and try to figure out what the other company's thinking. Harvester, says, well, maybe we can just, maybe we should just buy deer and put an end to this. Um, you know, they, they end up buying a, a, a plow company, um, Harlan and Orndorff, I think based in Canton, Illinois and deer, deer comes back and and says, well, maybe we should, maybe we should build a factory in in Canada versus the United States. So we're not directly competing with them. So there's all these, mm. these kind of different versions Okay, that these two CEOs are sitting down and they have a follow-up where neither one of them wants to reveal what, what the other's doing. Right. They're kind of, they're dancing. Right. Interesting. Well then I, I was taking also, you had a chapter pretty early on, um, Neil titled, uh, uh, the great awakening and tied it to 1914. So it, First blush, I'm thinking, oh, this is World War One, but the Great Awakening. Well, why don't you just put it in your words? It was a, a, a tractor company out of Minneapolis, right? Yeah, it was, and and, and that's a a direct quote from a, a newspaper article that that talks about this period, and it's basically the advent of the small tractor, yep. um, specifically the bull tractor. The bull tractor, okay. Yeah, and, and, and so this is a company that basically was formed out of a number of previous companies. And that's one of the things I've tried to weave together um, in the narrative is that all of these things are linked and all these things are related. Yep. And, and, and the bull tractor is really the brainchild of a father-son combo, um, the, the Hartsaws. And uh, the Reverend Hartsaw is a, is a pastor who sells his, his automobile and uh, moves out west and buys a farm. And he and his son develop this large tractor and they sell it and they put the proceeds towards building another tractor. You know, pretty typical story for that period in time. Yep. Well, they eventually land on the son's idea, which is building a small tractor. Okay. And, and most farms in the United States are, are under 50 acres at that period in time. Right. So they thought instead of, of building this large prairie tractor, let's build lots of small tractors. Hmm. And, and, and that's what was referred to in some circles as the great awakening, which is this kind of light bulb moment of, Oh, now let's build a small affordable tractor, much like the model T was a, an affordable right. um, automobile for the masses. And, and that's really what triggered a lot of what was to come because 
after that point, everyone was was racing to catch up. Oh, and did I read that right in, in the book, Neil? The bull was priced at three hundred ninety-five dollars back in nineteen fourteen. That's right. Okay, and that basically, like you say, just accelerated overall tractor sales to a whole different whole different ball game. It did. You 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 had that take place. You had the beginnings of, of what they called the National Tractor Demonstration. So you have tractor shows taking place for the first time. It was something that grew out of a few shows in Canada. You start to see the industry come together and say, hey, you know, we've really got something here. This whole idea of, of mechanical um, horses, yeah. which, which they were called in some circles. Um, you start to see industry associations come together. All of a sudden you go from, you know, six or eight or 10 manufacturers to a hundred, uh, four or five years later, there's 150 companies building tractors. There's startups. Every machine shop in the country is, is producing parts for tractors. So it just, it just really accelerates very quickly. Wow. So what, what was the time frame when there were a hundred to 150 companies making tractors? What are we talking about for years there? Yeah, we really go from about the 1912 time period through about 1918, 1920. So by the time, you know, Deere buys the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company in, in 1918, it's a very crowded space all of a sudden. Right. Yeah, so Deere, yeah, like you were saying, not not first in, but um, the timing of the move was was right looking back, I suppose. Would you say? Yeah, I would say, and, and, and part of the delay is, and, and it's one of the things that's fascinating and why I chose these three companies is they all approached it in very different ways. Um, you know, Ford said, I'm going to pour money into it. We're going to build um, what they thought was the perfect design. And, of course, every manufacturer said that the machine was perfected, whichever right. one they designed. Right. But Ford said, we're going to, it's mass production. One size fits all. We're going to sell it cheaper than everybody else, and, and we're just going to going to go volume. International Harvester had a, a pretty wide portfolio, meaning uh, different models, different sizes. Um, they were kind of trying to cater to everyone. Mm. And Deere said, "Well, we've got very finite resources because part of the equation for Deere is they just bought." 10 companies right. over, uh, you know, from 1910 to 1912 and, and went from a $3 million company to a $33 million company. And they couldn't find a bank to loan them any more money. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so, so going into this business was not something you just, just go do. And so their approach was, we're going to study the market. We're going to start our own internal R and D. We're going to, we're going to develop these machines until some of this settles down and we figure out what people are willing to buy. And, okay. um, what Deere and IH had in common was they both wanted to be sure that there was a dealer infrastructure in place and a, and a network of mechanics to actually repair these things right. because, you know, it's it, selling a tractor or something, but keeping it running is, is something else entirely. Right. What was and so you got to build this entire infrastructure out and compare it today to an electric car. Right. Like, that's great. I'll buy an electric car. But if you're telling me um, charging stations are, are 2,000 miles apart, well, right. that's a little harder for me to get behind. Right. <laughs> Actually, on the topic of electric vehicles, I, I was struck, Neil. A young Henry Ford, I think you had an anecdote in the book early on where he went out. Was it New York when you met with Thomas Edison? Yeah. 
and they were kind of, it sounded to me like they're spitballing, got a napkin out and they're writing down, a, Henry's sharing his ideas for the car he wants to build and electric car was was in the discussion. And I mean, you tell me, did Thomas just kind of say, well, that would be too heavy, it's impractical? Did I catch that right? Or Well, well, actually Edison was the one designing an electric car. Oh, okay. Which, which was not uncommon. A, a lot of automobiles in the late 19th and early 20th century actually started as, as, as electric um, uh, batteries suffering from the same challenges as manufacturers today, which is right. they, they couldn't maintain a, a, a charge long enough. Right, right. Um, the, the first electric car uh, in Moline was built in 1899. Wow. And, wow. and so there was, there was a, a lot of that being done. And, and Henry Ford, who worked for Thomas Edison for a number of years, um, had developed uh, his own designs based on the internal combustion engine. And, okay. and, and Edison looked at it all and said, yep, you've got it. Do it because, you know, you've, you've got a power. You've got your own self-generating power source. We can't do that with batteries. And did I catch that right? It was actually Edison kind of pounded his fist on the table and told Henry, "Do it, do it, right?" Yeah, and it was a huge vote of confidence for for Henry Ford. Thomas Edison was his hero, and um, yeah, so it was it was it was one of those seminal moments for Ford, and it just kind of relit the fire. I don't know if it needed to be relit, right? Well, that's but, amazing. Uh, he went back home and they continued to pursue that. So back to the tractor war piece on the Ford side, the dealer network element of it, how would you describe their approach over the years? Now they obviously had success mass selling the, the automobiles, but did they take the same tack as IH and Deere with the building out the dealer network or not? They didn't. Henry Ford uh, essentially forced the, the tractor onto his automobile dealers. Hmm. And they weren't incredibly excited about it. They didn't feel like like they had the expertise to sell a machine. They certainly didn't have the expertise to service it. Um, and, and and the way Ford also did it is, is the dealers had to buy them. And, wow. and so that's why he was able to, to push them out the door. And so all of a sudden, they start to become a liability gotcha. over the years. Hmm. Interesting. If and you... and, and it's, it's also, I mean, one of the things that drew me to this story was there was this relationship between Deere and Henry Ford during all of this time. Huh. What, because what? Ford decided very early that he wasn't going to build implements. Okay. The, the reason being there was no money in implements. Hmm. No money. <laughs> so you can imagine a, a company like John Deere would spend 80 years building only implements probably takes offense at that. I would think. Yeah. Deere, no, was it 1837? That's when Deere got started? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that wouldn't sit too well if telling you there's no money in implements, but so another dance, uh, Ford and Deere were dancing. Yeah, they were dancing behind the scenes and, and Deere engineers, including Theo Brown, who I've just grown to just have this incredible admiration for, hmm. um, would, would go to, to visit Henry Ford quite a bit. And it started with this kind of starstruck, you know, relationship of, oh my, I just can't wait that I'm going to get to see Henry Ford. Yeah. I'm going to take a picture of him. And, yeah. you know, he's, he's writing these things in, in his journal. And if anybody wants to read Theo Brown's journals or at uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, a lot of them have been scanned and are available online. Wow. So I, I encourage people to go take a look at, at those journals. Cool. Um, yeah, but he talks about going up there and they're negotiating and uh, they're, they're, they're designing a plow to go with the Fordson tractor, believe it or not. Okay. 
And so deer gets into the tractor business um, with the Waterloo gas, you know, with, with the Waterloo boy in 1918. Deer also comes out with with the all-wheel drive tractor, a.k.a. the Dane, what they called at the time simply the John Deere tractor, yep. um, of which they were probably 90 to 100 built. And then mm. that's a whole other, you know, three-hour story. Uh, this uh, is this is why it's so fun to talk to you, Neil. And folks, this is why you have to buy this book, Tractor Works, 25 bucks, get it on Amazon. Uh, just chock full of these little uh, sub-stories and, and heading off different angles, but tying it together and... So, so Neil, walk us through, let's say it's 1925 now. So Deer's been in the game, you know, what, seven years on the tractor side. Where are we at in 1925 in terms of market dominance? Who's making a play? Uh, how's it starting to look like it's going to shake out? Yeah, 1925, it looks like Henry Ford owns the whole thing. Mm. He's, he's got about 75% market share. He's, he's still telling everyone he's going to build a million tractors a year. Um, his, his top production year is a little over 100,000, which is still pretty pretty amazing in the mid-1920s, considering that yeah. 13 years before the entire industry was ten or 12,000 machines. Wow. But, but he's got a 75% share. International Harvester is a number two. So they went from you know 40% market share and, and a market leader to... Um, low double digits at best, and okay. then you've got a hundred companies who are still kind of scrambling for the rest. And where was Deer in 1925? What percent would you guess of the market tractor market? Deer's probably five, six, seven percent. It, it, it gets tough to track because um, companies didn't do a very good job yeah. of. Well, they probably did a good job of tracking volume. We just don't have the records, right? Right. And, and so you, you know, and it's. I've got an extensive notes section in the back that, that tries to explain a lot of this because it's a combination of government sources, trade associations, company resources. So you'll, you'll look at production data that exists from, from Case and, and International Harvester, and you kind of have to stitch it together. Right. But you kind of see year over year deer slowly gaining. Um, the mid twenties is also a period where you see the landscape, just the seismic change in the landscape, which is harvester, deer, case, these other manufacturers start to evolve their designs. Okay. Um, you start to see the introduction of, of, of the farm all deers D. So the landscape starts to change and Henry Ford says, Nope, we're still building the Fordson, mm. you know, maybe a minor improvement here and there, but more or less it's the same Fordson that came out in 1918. And, and, and Harvester with the Farmall is looking at a very different market than Deer is looking at with the D. Okay. And, and that's part of, of what I found really fascinating because it, it's easy to look back and say, oh, well, this caused this. And, yeah. and it's true, but it was for very specific reasons. So far, so uh, IH was focusing on what with their tractor play? What was their niche? Yeah, so it really turned into the farmall, and the farmall almost never happened. Hmm. Um, you know, they were focused on on corn, yep, and 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 that really developed out of their failed motor motor cultivator, which hmm. a lot of companies tried to build, and the farmall almost never happened because they had so much money um, tied up into the McCormick Deering, the ten twenty and fifteen thirty, hmm. and, and and their CEO. 
um, Alexander uh, Legee basically said, like, we can't afford it. We don't have any money to put into it. <laughs> mm, wow. And, and, and But then you have some persistent engineers, um, Bert Benjamin and, and some others, who continue to kind of uh, build some new prototypes and tests. And then it, at, at one point, it just becomes undeniable that you got to build the thing and you got to put a lot of weight behind it. Huh. It's kind of a little, as a historian, you're digging through these things. Uh, important to keep in mind uh, the cash position of these companies at various points. Uh, you know, maybe you know, seeing what the opportunity is, but not being able to, to go for it. I, when you've got a hundred, 150 companies elbowing, elbowing like mad for, for market share, what a period to analyze. Wow. Yeah. And that, and that's, um, you know, the mid twenties, you're, you're coming out of world war one. Yep. And, and so there were what, what they called limitation orders where manufacturers could only, could only build so much because, you know, Deere's engineers were pulled off. They were designing ambulance wagons for the French army and, and designing uh, uh, carts and, and ammunition. And, and so these manufacturers were diverted into doing other things. And then the early 1920s, uh, there's a, a pretty steep depression in the United States yep. that, that particularly hit agriculture hard. And that's really where this term tractor wars comes from, Hmm. which, which was this period in the early 1920s where you had price wars and Ford started it by dropping the price of the Fordson competitors had to, had to match that. Now all of a sudden you could buy a Fordson and he'd throw in a free Oliver plow and then you have to match that. And, Hmm. and, um, kind of survival of the fittest almost, huh? Yeah, exactly. Deer got to a point in 1921 where the board of directors got together and had a discussion on whether or not they were going to sell their uh, tractor line. Really? Because they didn't know if there was a future in it. Wow. So if you want to get in your time machine and and, and, and go to a meeting, that might be the one to go to. Wow. <laughs> okay, I just have a question, Neil. Now, this amazing book, Tractor Tractor Wars, and all these amazing anecdotes here, you know, you're just – you can tell you own them. I mean, you just, you know them. Huh? How long did it take you to research and put this book together? I'm, I'm about five years in now. Wow. And, and it's, it started off, it's a lot of nights and weekends. And of course I, I have the luxury of, of sitting in a room with, with boxes and boxes of history. And so it's, it's notes that I've scrolled away over the years and, and tapping into to collectors and a lot of industry knowledge but, um, right. yeah, it's, it's about five years all said and told with kind of focused on, on these, on this specific area. Wow. And you have two previous books, is that both from 2005? Neil, the John Deere story, biography of plowmaker John and Charles Deere, that was 05. And then a, also a book that year, Lincoln's Wrath, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The, the Lincoln's Wrath book is, is a, a story of the newspaper editor during the Civil War that was shut down by the Lincoln administration mm. and, and actually sued the administration and, and won. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a civil liberties story. So you're telling and, me uh, the, the yeah. battle between the press and the highest level of U.S. government is not a, it's not a new battle? It's been around for over 100 years? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of an old story. Okay. Um, yeah, if you if you want to if you want to read contentious stories uh, about 
about the government and the press, you know, go back to John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson. I think that was when it was at its nastiest. Mm. <laughs> wow. Well, um, you, yeah, you, so, so that was that book that came out in 2005. And then the John Deere story, which, which is a biography of John and Charles Deere, uh, Deere's first and second presidents. Uh, and it basically covers the first 70 years of, of company history. And again, very, from a very kind of personal um, sure, standpoint, sure. Is, is always been my interest, the personalities and, and kind of the context and, and all the different things that are, are driving these, these companies. So as a historian, when you're researching projects like this, those earlier books or your Tractor Wars book, I mean, it must take an incredible amount of doggedness and patience to sort through materials. You don't necessarily know what you're looking for until you hit it, I would think. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's why I'm, I'm 15 years in, in between books. Mm. Um, I've started about 20 books. <laughs> but, oh. but, you know, I, I have the luxury of a day job. So, so that's where most of my energy goes. Sure. But I, I really only want to write about things that interest me. Right. And, and that I think is, is, is something that's new. If it's a book that's been written 10 times, you know, I, I don't really see a lot yeah. of value in, in me putting energy into writing a slightly updated version of it. Mm. And, and that's where Tractor Wars came from, which is there's there's plenty of amazing books um, a, a, about this period of, of the tractor industry written through the lens of mostly through folks who, who collect machines yep. and restore them and know more than I'll, I'll never, ever, ever know about these machines. And so I thought what I could contribute was kind of an insider's view of this is what was going on in the boardroom. This is what the engineers were saying. Mm. This, this is, this is what was going on in the country. You know, world war one, the Spanish flu, uh, pandemic, uh, you know, what are all these other pieces that we overlook when we just focus on the machines? So, so that was really my objective. And and like I said, I just kind of, I got seduced by these personalities and these stories of Theo Brown sitting on a, on a railroad track with Henry Ford uh, in the mid twenties. Both of them seemed to kind of be having a bad day and and just, just kind of talking about how tired they were and, and and all the work that they were putting in. And they just couldn't really seem to, to, to figure things out that day. And so, you know, it just boils down to these very personal moments between people which have always captivated me so you you've highlighted theo brown the the deer uh he was an engineer did you say uh, yeah he was an engineer who, who joined deer in 1912 he uh developed the uh uh the manure spreader with the beater on the axle was was his claim okay. to fame and and uh he was one of deer's most in, important engineers and, okay. and designers um, really through the 1950s. Well, well Neil, but, who would be some of your other favorite names from this period in the teens and the 20s? Maybe f- names that some folks know, but maybe for whatever reason that you have a special feeling for having researched this project. Yeah, you've got Theo Brown um, on the deer side, people like Joseph Dane and Charles Melvin, William Butterworth, who I've always thought got a really kind of uh, bum rap about his his opposition to the John Deere tractor, and that was one of the things I was hoping to mm-hmm. to remedy with the book was to kind of kind of state his case, his perspective on on development of the tractor. Okay. Um, 
from from an international harvester perspective, EA Johnston um, early on from from automobile development and tractor development and, and Bert Benjamin and and uh, Cyrus McCormick Jr. Um, from from the Ford perspective, uh, Eugene Farkas and and Joe Gollum and of course Henry Ford and so yeah, you you get this amazing cast of characters, mm. um, you know, first generation Americans who who just kind of made their way and uh, someone like Eugene Farkas who basically got a new job with a new automobile manufacturer every six months because they offered him a, a two cent an hour raise. <laughs> two cents an hour, nice. Um, really yeah, nice. so there was this, this vicious battle for, for talent. Um, yeah, when I actually, when I, when I read your uh, description of that, uh, the fluidity of talent moving around Detroit, I guess I was thinking Silicon Valley today um, with the talent, with all the tech stuff moving back and forth, but um, I, I was also intrigued, Neil, uh, a blog you wrote, um, which I think you have your blog on your website, neildalstrom.com. Is that correct? That's right. It was a blog. I think the title was something like 1990s personal computers and 1920 tractors, the similarities. Uh, as a guy who started business in 1989 with an Acer computer and a five and a quarter inch floppy drive and the thing weighed like 100 pounds. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by this. Can you walk us down the path here? Yeah, I just couldn't help but but kind of see all the all the parallels. And I got my first email address when I was a freshman in college, and and so I kind of straddle this analog and, and digital world. Yep. And so I remember things in the mid 1990s, like the first time I made a phone call through my computer on on dial up, you know, on a 56k modem. <laughs> And, and, and seeing Super Bowl commercials um, for all these internet startup companies, which raised hundreds of millions of dollars in, in investment money, and, and then they were bankrupt a year later. Pets.com. Yeah, Pets.com and, and these sorts of, of businesses. And it just took me back to this the, the 19 teens in the tractor industry yeah. where you had these startup companies that were actually trying to build a tractor and sell them. And then you had, had companies that were basically shell companies that were raising a lot of money and then skipping town. Mm. And, and then you go into a period of, of regulation, industry regulation, government regulation. Um, and then you go through this period of where you're trying to develop standards so that yep. there's some some sense of of border to the chaos yep. um, with all the different manufacturers. So there were just so many parallels for me between those two eras of, of time. And at the end of the day, the farm tractor in 1912 or 15, it was new tech, and, and they yep. were positioning it as new tech. Yep. They were they they were positioning it as a way to keep young people on the farm in 1920. Young to keep young people on the farm, right. isn't, isn't that right. interesting? So you, you see those things, and you just you can't believe the parallels to, to that. Mm. That's amazing. Uh, oh, Neil, I, I gosh, I think we could, I could, I could keep you on and talk to you for ten hours. I think on any number of topics. Just uh, a couple of things. I was curious if I uh, lob these at you, and again, folks, the book is Tractor Wars. 
go go online to Amazon and buy it. Twenty five bucks, fantastic by Neil Dahlstrom. Um, as you research this project, um, like what would what are the biggest what ifs as you look at that period and how it all? I mean, how it all came out. But if maybe one thing just went a different way, the whole thing could have been different. Any any things jump out at you there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think the big what if for me, you know, I already said was what if Deer, you know, sold the tractor right. um, line in 1921. Um, that's a that's a huge what if because would would Deer be here? Um, right. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't want to give away the ending to the book, but you know, what if what if Ford said in 1925, "Hey, we're going to go back and we're going to redevelop the Fordson and build something entirely new." Mm. And, and take on the farm all mm. um, completely changes the landscape. So I think there's a, a, a lot of those. Mm. Um, Interesting. Well, this is rich territory, folks. Again, if you love, you know, history of farming in America, agriculture and, and tractors, uh, just incredible anecdotes and weaving it all together. Neil Dahlstrom, you've done an amazing job. And again, the book comes out January 11th, 2022. But, uh, Again, tell people how they can uh, get your book, Tractor Works. Yeah, go go look up Tractor Wars on Amazon.com. You can always go to my website, neildahlstrom.com, um, or just a simple Google search under Tractor Wars should get you there. Tractor Wars, right. I may be misstated there, but Tractor Wars is the book, folks. How many pages is it, Neil? It's It comes in a little over 250 pages. Okay, and it's a hardcover. You'll want to keep this right on the living room, right on the coffee table. Is, yeah, uh, I hope so. Yeah, some great, some great uh, images in the book as well. Fantastic uh, things here, and uh, I guess I didn't connect the dots here, but I mean, we're talking about hundred years ago, nineteen twenties versus uh, you know twenty twenties. So, get the book, folks. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for the conversation again. Manager of the archives and history at John Deere, and can I bug you again to have you back on the podcast before too long, Neil? I'd love to. All right. Thanks. Thanks much, Neil. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my friend Neil Dahlstrom, Manager of Archives and History with John Deere. And again, just trust me on this one. I've I've looked at the book. It is phenomenal. $25. You can buy Tractor Wars uh, out on Amazon or go to Neil's website, uh, neildahlstrom.com. And Neil is N-E-I-L, neildahlstrom.com. Uh, but again, a fascinating read. So many stories. Some you may have heard, but I tell you what, tons of stories uh, you've never heard before. And we just scratched a few of them in our fun conversation. But thank you so much for spending time with us on our Machine Repeat podcast, episode number 39. We will have a new episode coming at you here uh, very soon. And until then, I will see you out in sales. Mm-hmm.